0: Check out GuardianVets.com now.
1: Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas, and I am excited. You listen all the way through the episode, or if you just want to fast forward to the end, I'm going to start posting opportunities for A, practice ownership, and B, associateships with folks I know around the country that are doing great things. And I'm going to do a quick read of the opportunity, have links in the show notes to those opportunities. And I hope for someone out there, it can be a great connection to find either that practice ownership dream opportunity and or a great associateship that leads to the balance, the work-life that you're looking for. So with that, excited to launch that. There will be more over time as more owners start uh, reaching out. But I am excited to do that. So check that out at the end. Don't leave too fast after the guest wraps up.
0: If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now.
1: You've heard me talk about the opportunity in urgent care. So VetCheck believes in the power of your capacity to influence your patients, patient families, and be a leader in your community. How they do this is by giving you the freedom to take ownership of your future to make the biggest impact in your patients' lives. They equip you with a turnkey opportunity to take action on the dream through a unique pathway to owning your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise. They provide a solution to remove obstacles like competing against corporate dollars in the community that you want to be in and having access to hospital ownership, medical directorship, and more. Also, you become a partner along the journey. A VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise is the answer. If you're interested, check out episode number 80, where I talk to Dr. Siva and he shares more about his story and the opportunity. So if this sounds like something that's interesting, you reach out and learn how you can own your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise today by visiting VetCheckForPets.com, which again is VetCheckForPets.com. Today, I am joined by Dr. Angela Hoffman, who is a practice owner in beautiful San Diego, California. As it is snowing currently out my window here in Indiana, I'm slightly jealous. I've never been, but heard great things. We recently connected and had talked about practice ownership and just opportunities and life in general. And I wanted to bring her on to highlight someone that is doing practice ownership in a way that's, I think, inspiring. Um, I think the story is really interesting and having fun as well, for the most part, right? There are days. But Dr. Hoffman, I wanted to thank you for coming on the podcast and thank you for being here.
2: Oh, it's absolutely a pleasure to be here. I really enjoyed our chat, and I, I so appreciate you being out there and kind of being a voice for our profession, and you certainly didn't have to be. You can do many stuff for anybody, and I just really appreciate that you saw the need, and you go in there and kind of tackle the stuff that that's important to us and really advocate for us.
1: Well, thank you for that. And I would just say, selfishly, right, the folks in veterinary medicine are very enjoyable to work with. So selfishly for me, I'm like, these people are way nicer to work <laughs> with as clients and interacting and like all this stuff. So like, why not lean into that? I always kid my business partner. He works with a lot of folks in tech that they seem to be kind of concentrated in that Bay area. And there's some that are other parts of the country as well, but I'm just like, they're just not very nice. Like when I've interacted with them, I'm like, you need to work with a different kind of client. Because I was like, you're missing out here. Like these yeah, we're, people, right? We're, we're the we are so much nicer.
2: We're a pretty good group. I will say on the whole, it's a pretty cool uh, industry to be in.
1: Totally. And so I have felt that since coming into this. Really, I think concentrated in 2019 was when I really made that decision to to go full force into VetMed. And, and yeah, it's been a journey. And I appreciate anyone that listens to the podcast. And this has definitely been a huge part of my learning journey as well. And with that, the first question for for those listening that I wanted you to kind of tackle and go through was just kind of your background of becoming a veterinarian, which it's been anything but smooth. And, <laughs> and you'll probably chuckle a little bit when I say that, but that was one thing that struck me in our initial conversation of how you got to where you are today. There's been a lot of obstacles and things. Can you kind of paint a picture and explain The initial interest of, hey, I'm going to go become a veterinarian and what that looked like and some of the things that you have encountered both personally and professionally?
2: Oh, it was a journey. And I think that that's made me appreciate everything a little bit more. I'm always telling my kids and anybody who will listen like, hey, you do not have to have it figured out when you're 18, 22, 30. (laughs) There's always time and that's the good thing. So yeah, I was that stereotypical five-year-old kid who's like, I'm going to be a vet when I grow up and you could always find me wherever the animals were, wherever I was, that's where I was. And life sort of got in the way. I kind of got in my own way, honestly. I had a really interesting upbringing and I won't belabor that point. We don't have to start this back when I was born, but went to high school in a very small town in Northeast Oklahoma, but it was a an oil town and the headquarters of a big corporation. So while it was rural in Northeast Oklahoma, you also would have people sitting next to you at the start of the school year that one had been in Singapore the year before, and one had been in London, and one had been in Norway. We had a very high high dollar, white collar kind of demographic. And as such was a really competitive school. We did not have, we were so small, we only had one high school. So there was no like, eh, I have the money, I'm gonna pull my kid out and put him in private school, or there was certainly no online school. So as such, we all benefited from that. We got a really great education. But I also had this fear because we had, like, the highest number per capita national merit finalists and just a really high-achieving kind of group. And so I looked around, and even then I was like, oh, vet school's really competitive. Pfft, I'm getting B's in math. Like, there's no way I can go. So I just counted myself out. Went to college, got an English degree, ended up going back getting a journalism degree. And always, of course, have a love for animals, but just told myself, oh, You're not as good at that, so don't even worry about it. And then as the years went on, I just kept finding ways to get interested and get involved with animals. I was working as a communications director. I was on the board of a nonprofit that works with county animal shelters. So keep doing that. And when you do that, you end up with some foster animals, you know, here and there. When you end up with those and you have your own pets, you're in your vet a lot. So I got the nod from my vet. I mean, it wasn't that much different back in the 90s than it is now. We always need help, right? And so I'd be in there enough, and they'd go, hey, do you want a job? And I was like, yeah, I could do that on Saturdays. That'd be fun. Well, I'm one of those people who doesn't like to not know things. So I worked there for a while, and then I was like, oh, I could get my RVT. And so I got registered as a veterinary technician. Then life takes its other twists and turns. And after having four kids in the span of six years, at the height of our economic meltdown in 2008, 2009, with a brand-new home and everything else, my marriage fell apart and I had to kind of do the ultimate pivot. So I had stopped working for a year or so and I called my old clinic back. I was like, Hey, I don't suppose you guys need any help. And the woman who was the practice manager at the time said, are you kidding me? Why do you think I'm answering the phone at eight o'clock? Like nobody showed up today. We absolutely need you. So I went back there with my RVT and because I have that gene, it's like, I just need to know more. I need to do more. One day I was sitting there and I saw in one of our like DVM 360s or something like that, one of those magazines that gets delivered to the hospital, it was an ad for Ross Veterinary School. And I was working with a guy who I had teched with who came back as a doctor to our practice. And he was great. He had been to Ross and they had trained him so well. And I was like, I wonder if I could do that. Followed immediately by, of course, you cannot do that. Like, look at yourself. you got these four kids. You're in a house that's being foreclosed. You know, you're trying to move, all the stuff. You can't do it. Well, here I am. <laughs> I did do it. And it was a fantastic decision. I mean, it was super, super hard. There's no getting around that. But it was, I think, the thing that I was kind of leading up to my whole life. And I think that if I had done it at 25, I don't know that I would be where I am and that I would have appreciated it as much. So yeah, it was incredibly, incredibly difficult. The kids came with me for part of the time. They certainly saw me studying doing my prereqs and then in, in school and once I got out. So it was a journey for all of us, that's for sure.
1: That story is wild. Uh, it's one of those that going through it, you're probably just, hey, I'm going to put my head down and keep kind of grinding through things. And then you get to the end of it and you look back and reflect. You're like, how the heck did I do that? Like, Oh, you nailed it. That's exactly yeah, it. why? people <laughs>
2: ask me sometimes, and I honestly, there's enough room now, enough temporal space that I go, oh, I did do that. Like saying four kids in six years. Like, I kind of forgot that too. I was like, yeah, you know, I have four kids. And then I was talking to a client and she was, you know, trying to bring kids in and get them out of the constant stuff. And I was like, oh, listen, I have four kids in six years. And my brain just went, What? Oh, my God, you did. Like, your brain does completely skate over this stuff as you're doing it sometimes, and that's probably self-preservation.
1: So, you graduate from Ross. What's oh, next actually, after that? What, what happens?
2: Yeah, fun fact. I actually didn't even go to Ross. That was where I started to look at, and then I had a friend who was going to SGU in Grenada, and she was really happy with it and liked it. And I liked their scheduling a little bit better. They do it as a typical school. Like, you go in the fall, then you have a break, over the holidays. And then you go again in the spring, then you have three months. In Ross, at least the way it was then, I assume it's the same. It was seven semesters and it's just back to back. So you have only two weeks between each one. And I was like, that's not going to work for me, you know, if I want to come home or anything. So I did. I ended up at St. George's University. So I was there in Grenada for three years. And then I did my clinical year at the University of Georgia in Athens and after that, I did come back and I worked at the hospital where I had been attacked. that hospital that so many years ago I called and said, hey, do you still need me? And I went back as a doctor. I thought I was going to buy into that practice. That was kind of what was presented to me and like so many associates before that didn't come to fruition. And it was a little bumpy when I decided, wow, this isn't happening and I need to leave and make my own opportunities that didn't go over great with the practice owner and you know, I think looking back, I don't think she was ready to sell. I don't think she would have even really wanted somebody to buy in, but she thought maybe she needed to pursue this. And anyway, so that's another one of those just life twists and turns and a door slams in your face and you think, oh, how am I going to get past this? What am I going to do? This was my thing. This is the whole reason I went to vet school was so I could come back and join this practice and buy in and grow it. I think about it now and go, oh man, if I had gotten that opportunity that I thought that was what I wanted at the time that I just don't think that would have been for me and I wouldn't be on this path that I am now so yeah these things just I hate to be too Pollyanna about it and like everything works out for the best because it's certainly not that way and certainly a lot of blood sweat and tears and more tears and more tears go into it but yeah I'm really happy with where I am right now and that would not have been an option had I pursued the other thing.
1: If you kind of go back in time to that opportunity when it was presented and when you thought it was going to happen, is there any lesson or anything that you would share for that associate that may be listening that thinks they have a similar opportunity or wants to entertain something like that that you would say, hey, maybe approach it this way and this is what I should have done to maybe not have it take as long to come to the conclusion that it wasn't going to work or just good questions to ask any, any so, thoughts there
2: so many things yeah and I think the main thing has to be just having transparent conversations and part of that was me like not wanting to have those because this was a person that I considered a friend as well and we went way way back and so I maybe didn't push hard enough on some things I can put that on myself for sure to just say hmm I should have had those, those tougher conversations. And I think those conversations are, hey, this sounds great. We're sort of talking around this. Let's put some things down on paper. The big giant red flag for me was when the financials were not shared with me. Instead, I was given a, well, and this was before the consolidators went super crazy, right? This was like four or five years ago. And she was still getting things in the mail like, every month of, Hey, have you thought about selling? You know, she knew kind of what the idea of what a multiple was out there and wanted to sell me for that. But all I knew from the numbers was what I could see. I could see my production. I could see the total revenue of the hospital, but that was all that was available in our PIMS. I did not know what was going out. I could see a lot of inventory on the shelves. I could see a lot of people working overtime. So I didn't really know the financial situation that the hospital was in. And when I asked for those, I was told, oh, yeah, yeah, never got them. And then a few weeks later, I was told, well, I don't know why you would need those anyway. Hello, giant red flag, right? Like, as anyone doing anything financial, you got to know, you've got to see the numbers, you've got to see the PLs, you've got to see what's going on. So I would start with just asking for, hey, are you comfortable letting me into the practice management system or to see your PL, you know, whatever it is. And if that is not, pretty immediately forthcoming, giant, huge red flag.
1: Absolutely. It's just like when a lot of times people say they want to buy real estate, right? Like, oh, I want to have passive income and all these different things. You know, what do you think? And it's always like, well, what's the (laughs) price that you're going to pay for it? It's the same way with a veteran house. Great opportunity. Practice ownership's great. Mm -hmm. And I beat Mm -hmm. that drum all the time in this podcast. But- well, what are you paying for it is always the
2: first. Yeah, I see what's coming in and that's great, but what's going out? And, and there was real estate owned and what does that look like? How much are you paying yourself for that? Is Are you paying your staff a living wage? Are you paying them too much? There's just so many questions. You can't ask somebody to sign on for hundreds of thousands of dollars or potentially more without getting some super basic information. So, and I think that speaks to That's one concrete step you can take. But the overarching thing there is, can you have these transparent, frank conversations with the person you're trying to enter into this with? That's just a really basic building block. And beyond that, I say, whether you're starting a practice, you're thinking about starting a practice, anything like that, you cannot do everything by yourself. You don't know everything. So you need someone like, I had an attorney, you know, I had a CPA. I had people way smarter than me in these little niches to look over these things when I did decide it was time to buy. So I think that's another huge thing, too, is don't assume with your schooling and everything else, you're great at what you do, I'm sure. But this is a whole different ballgame and you need people on your team that are able to sift through this information and help you ask those correct questions because you just don't know.
1: Yeah. And I've shared this resource in the past, but especially if you're going to buy into a hospital and it's not like a walkaway sale, let's say you're going to be partners for a while, right? So they're going to sell you a portion of it and it's going to be 50, 50, or maybe it's less than that. You're going to work together for a while. If those negotiations are tense, you still have to work together, right? (laughs) When it's done and you do buy in. So you have to be careful with how that goes, but the book, and I think it's probably the best, you know, 10 or 12 bucks that you can spend is a book called The Partnership Charter by David Gage. I used it with my business partner. And you don't have to do everything in the book, but it just gives you some good ideas of, I don't know, because I've never done this before, like, what are good things to ask and things that you might not even think to ask to just clear the air to make sure that there's not giant, big, red flashing Mm -hmm. signs saying, this is bad. This is bad. And you're like, oh, well, obviously people would think that way because that's how everyone thinks. And you're like, well, not this person that you're a partner with. And it's after you signed all this paperwork and it gets really expensive. Just like in a marriage, the divorce is expensive. Mm -hmm. It's the same way with the business relationship. And like to dissolve that, it's going to be really, really hard. So Yeah. yeah, to your point, if someone's not willing to have honest, open, transparent conversations now, when this is supposed to be like the honeymoon phase of everyone's happy and everything's great, Imagine what it's like when you have a disagreement on spending money, or right, and
2: it will happen. Like there's going to be conflict, and you can have healthy conflict. That's a thing. We as veterinarians aren't really taught that. We have a hard time. I think most of the people in our industry, we don't really like conflict's a bad word, and you know, and it doesn't always have to be. It can lead to some really good outcomes if you can have those healthy conversations, and you know what you're going to ask, but to your point, like getting a book like that's amazing because you just, you don't know, you've never done this before. And even if you've done it before, you haven't done it with this person. And it's very much like a marriage and you've got to figure out at the beginning where it can go wrong. What do we do? That's the first thing I tell people is you got to go, okay, assume this is just all going to fall apart one day. Then what do we do? Like, you've got to have that contingency in place before you even go down the road.
1: Well, and even just like if you do come to an impasse on a decision, like how do you resolve it so it doesn't have to go all the way to we're dissolving everything? Like how do you resolve something where you both are saying, this is really important to me, this is my line in the sand, and both of you have it. Sometimes it's going to be like, eh, I don't care that much, I'll defer to you. But there is going to become a time where both of you are going to have that. And so you need to have some form or some rule set that's already established when everyone was level-headed. Mm -hmm. That you can then go to and say, this is how we're going to work through this. Right, And that conversation and the way the book kind of steps through things is really good. And it's not written where you need to have all this business knowledge. It's just written for normal people. So anyways, highly recommend that. I'll put it in the show notes. David Gage, The Partnership Charter. So I want to get back to kind of your story real quick. So it dissolves. You're like, eh, this isn't it. I'm going to move on because that's very different. So how did San Diego come into the picture? Like, did you have family there? How do you end up there?
2: Yeah, I was here. So that was home base in the beginning. When we moved here, when my then husband was finished with law school, we moved here to San Diego. So I had been there this whole time because it was a nice place to live. Like you said, I'm tired of we were from Kansas and Oklahoma and tired of snow and all that stuff. And it's like, oh, it turns out you don't have to live here. Cool. So we just came here and just did that. So then when I came back, went to that same practice, and when I decided it wasn't going to be the thing... I just reached out and started looking around. I sent letters, (laughs) actual handwritten letters, basically saying, I am actually a real person and I am interested in your clinic. I did tons and tons of research, you know, before that on where things were in our county. It's a really large county, but it's very, you know, it's easy to get around. There are just a lot of little neighborhoods. San Diego is just a bunch of little neighborhoods scattered over a really large county. So having been in this industry for quite a while, I knew the clinics that were kind of around me and I sort of had the idea of where some other ones were. Got a big map of San Diego, started putting pins in it. I'm like, well, where could I look? And I'm sort of in the north of San Diego County, but I was working down by the beaches down in Ocean Beach. So I was driving almost an hour to work every day. And when it was good, I didn't mind. So I was comfortable looking all over the county and I just started doing that, I started reaching out to people. What I ended up getting to was somebody, a contact at uh, Wells Fargo that did practice loans. And I had reached out to him about like, hey, I'm going to be looking into a practice soon. I'm a crazy planner, type A type person. And this just goes under one of those things where, hey, this was a good thing that I did. So way before I even thought about it, uh, or you know, knew I was going to do this or knew where I wanted to go, I just started reaching out to people like this guy at Wells Fargo going, hey, what do you need for a banker? You know, what are you guys looking for? And he was able to give me some of that information about, hey, here's some things you should do prior to applying for a practice loan. And then he just remembered me and he was like, hey, he called me one day and he goes, I've got this guy. Um, he's got this practice in Oceanside and he wants to retire. And I was like, okay, well, it's like looking at the first house or whatever, like it's not going to be the one. Spoiler alert, it was the one. And that's the one I ended up buying, but I wouldn't have known about it had I not just taken a flyer and started randomly reaching out to people. And obviously, most of that did not work out. And it was time I spent doing it. But that's just kind of how you, I think how you have to do it if you want to find some of these great deals that not everybody knows about.
1: Did anyone get mean or frustrated or put off by you reaching out and asking and trying to inquire if, if they would be willing no, to, to sell?
2: Actually, I don't think I heard back from one person. I didn't hear anything for the first few people. I was like, okay, well, is this weird? Like, does this sound spammy, this email? And so I had sent a couple of emails and then I decided to send letters and I had a little sticker that I made up because I have a logo for myself because this is where we live in the 2020s. Like, like, okay, I'm going to need a little website and I have social media and little branding just wherever I want to take this, whether it's as a practice owner or a speaker on, you know, going back to school later in life, whatever. And I was even putting that stuff in. I was like, here's where you can find me on social media and stuff, <laughs> to see that I'm an actual human. And I honestly don't think I got one response. And I was targeting these kind of one and two doctor practices that looked like they had older doctors working there that might want to get out of that. Because again, even back then, like multiples were not crazy, kind of like they are now or have been but they were there. And I was like, well, I can't afford to go buy a four or five doctor practice. I need to find a fixer-upper. And so that was who I was targeting. And maybe those people just weren't interested or they had their exit plan or they didn't know what to do with this letter from this weirdo. I don't know. But no, I didn't get any hate from it.
1: Yeah. And just the lack of response. I'm not surprised. But if you said, hey, someone told me to go pound sand and never talk to them again, I wouldn't be surprised with that too. Because sometimes it's strange. At the end of the day, though, you're, you're trying to you're putting yourself out there. Um, yeah, I'm trying in, to make
2: a personal connection with somebody and go, what I'm hoping for is those people that are like, I'm not going to sell to a corporate. I hate corporate. It's the worst thing now. We can debate that all day. I've worked for corporates. I don't think they're terrible, but some people have super strong opinions, especially these kind of older veterinarians that maybe don't want or need the quote unquote life changing money or aren't going to get it. Because honestly, I'm looking at these practices and like the one that I bought was a no low. It really wasn't worth what I paid for it, but I knew I could turn it into something. That's what I was hoping for. I was hoping I was going to get that person. That was like, I don't want to sell to a corporate, but I need to get something out of this. So here you go. And it's in a great area and I can turn it around.
1: I know what you're talking about, but can you describe what a no-low practice is?
2: Yeah. So what this is, is a practice that is functioning and it's making some money, but it's not really worth money. And that goes back to what we were talking about before about this practice that looks great and it's you know bringing in money and we're employing people, but is everything going out to rent, to paying people, or they're paying everybody and that's great, but maybe they're not paying themselves because, quote unquote, oh, I don't need the money anymore or I don't need that much to live on. Well, when you get down to a P&L and you look at that, if you're seeing a business that its EBITDA or its profit is 5% that's not a going business. You know, it's not something that someone could come in, take over and start making money from. So that's personally what I was kind of looking for as long as it was in the right place. And I'm super lucky, I know, being in this metropolitan area. If we were in rural Oklahoma, that's a much harder deal. You may be the only vet in town, maybe the only vet for 50, 100 miles, but If you don't have anybody who wants to come in and purchase that practice and you don't have enough caseload for them, then even though you're doing okay, that business might actually not be worth any money. So I knew that where I am, I could take something that was not making a lot of money and turn it into something else.
1: So when you purchased it, my notes from our first conversation was you had one employee and kind of walk (laughs) us through from starting with that one employee and what it looks like now.
2: Yeah. I think this veterinarian was a mid-70s at least, had kind of retired on the job. He was there every single day, but there were only like a few appointments coming in. And I think he just figured out what his nut was every month. Like, I'm going to make my nut and then I'm good. So there were a lot of prices that were a little high, but (laughs) those are the levers you push, right? If you don't have a bunch of people coming in the door, you just raise the prices or you can kind of lower the prices and do a little more volume. His was low volume, higher prices, he had typically had three employees at a time. At that point, he only had two. And the day before I came on, one quit. So, yeah, I had the one. And I was just thinking about it yesterday because I was looking at I have a new associate and I'm watching people just kind of run around and talking about what's coming in, what's coming in tomorrow. And I was like, oh, my God, I so clearly remember 2019 and the phone would ring and I would like run up behind the receptionist answering the phone and listen. And then I go, are, who was that? What were they calling about? Are they coming in? Like I was just <laughs> could not wait to get people in the door. And I had one person and now I have this kind of flurry of activity and an RVT and people who are becoming RVTs and I'm able to mentor people and get externs from vet schools. And it's just been a slog. It's the same thing, honestly, as going to vet school for anybody who's out there who wants to try it it's just getting up every day and you go in and you do the stuff that you need to do and hopefully at some point it took me about 6 or 8 months to kind of really be able to step back and think some big thoughts because i was so consumed with working in the business and a little bit of working on the business just because i had to get butts in seats had to get people in the door but i don't know i mean when i look back on it i'd love to be able to tell you oh yes step 1 in the first month do this and then you get to step eight and here you are. But I really think a lot of it's just its just determination. It's just getting up every morning and going, all right, I'm going to go in. I'm going to do the things. And you do that every day and every day. And then you can look back and go, oh, wow, we've grown our business 30% year over year. We're employing this many people. I'm able to support my family. And it's only going up from there. So I get really excited when I, I have those little flashbacks. When I'm in the middle of all the craziness, I'm like, oh, yeah, I wanted this. This is good.
1: These were the problems I dreamed about. Yeah. 16, right. And they always problems, right?
2: That's <laughs> the other thing. It's not like you go, "Oh OK, so whew, once I get to this level of revenue or this many clients or I have an associate, then my problems will be over. And honey, no, <laughs> you just bought a bunch of different problems. Yeah. So and that's OK. Like, that's what you're supposed to do. Like every rung up this ladder. You might get rid of a couple problems. You're going to find some new problems, and that's another thing about I think practice ownership is you've got to kind of enjoy that. You've got to enjoy it, and I'm not saying every day is perfect. It's like Christmas. There are days when I want to hit my head against a wall and do, but on the whole, it's a super fun game, and I love playing it. And it's like, oh, new challenge. Okay, (laughs) let's go after this. And that's the mindset I think that you have to have to be successful as a practice owner.
1: And you've like looked at my notes because I was going to ask that question. And you just answered it, which is great. But two other things that actually I want to ask about that just came up from what you just shared. The first being your team and kind of how you've managed to not only grow, but retain the people that you've brought on. Can you talk a little about the journey? I mean, have you had a lot of turnover? I know staffing seems to be the issue in veterinary medicine and you keep hearing that over and over again, but I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts and the journey that you've been on you know becoming the boss, right so being the one that everyone's looking to,
2: yeah, I think my business model at this point is I'm just gonna sit here and just wait for you to get upset at where you're working and why it's awful and then you can work for me. <laughs> I have stolen away so many assistants, technicians, now a doctor, and it's all about just kind of I don't know if networking's kind of the right word, but just we all know people, right? It's a really small industry and You know, people that you've worked with, you know, people you talk to. Nowadays, we have social media, we have conferences, and I've tried really hard to put out on my social media and with people that I'm obviously working with in person, like who I am as a practice owner and what I believe in. And that is very strongly believing in women have been underrepresented in this industry in the important places. We are so many, right? We are just a huge majority of the workers in this industry. And yet when it gets up to the top levels and people making money and people making decisions, we're not there. So that's something that I'm super passionate about. And I hope that people, when they see like, oh, wow, look at what you did. Like you went back to school, you had these kids and you did this. Like this is doable. If I can do it, honestly, I say, I'm not that smart. Right. I'm like, I'm not, I'm an average vet at best. I had no business training, but if I can do it, anybody can do it. And so I'm really passionate about bringing other women along with me into practice ownership. If you are an RVT, like, let me teach you new skills. Let me, can I pay for you as an assistant to go to RVT school and then come work for me? We do not work weekends. We do not expect people to come in on their day off. We're super passionate about, if you need a mental health day, you don't have to explain to me what that looks like. Just, you don't have to do it. We're not going to gaslight you when you come in and all those things that we see in our industry that are leading to burnout and mental health problems. And that goes for the clients too. I don't tolerate bad client behavior and I'm super vocal about that. So that's been kind of my business model as I look at it. And honestly, I have people coming to me. So I have an ad out like on Hound and you know other places and sometimes we'll have little ads out. I don't really do Indeed anymore, but I don't have to because I have people at least... A couple of people a month coming to me asking me like, hey, are you hiring? What's going on? And and those people don't always come to me like, don't get me wrong. I'm not beating them off the stick or anything. But (laughs) it is interesting to me that like the bar is kind of low. If you just sort of tell people like, hey, I'm going to treat you well. I treat my people well. Like I show up every day and I do these things and I live these values. People will come and find you. And that's kind of been my experience. I've had, you know, a little bit of turnover just from life oh, my husband got transferred, you know, I've got to move on. So we had to find somebody else. But for the most part, my people that have been with me have been with me for a pretty long time, considering i have only been in business for three years. You know, I've got people that have been with me for half of that time. And that, that really excites me. That makes me happy.
1: Absolutely. And what you just talked about, people approaching you and it being a tight-knit, small community. I've heard that from others as well. It's like when you're doing good work, that gets noticed in the community because just like when you were looking for a practice to purchase, you kind of knew who may be good to approach, what were better practices, maybe which ones weren't as good. Oh, there's some issues at there. I don't want to go there. And so I think that again speaks volumes where it's simple, but it's not easy. You know, you got to do 25 things really well, do a handful of things really well. And at the end of the day, care and like genuinely care. And you'll be shocked at what happens because most people yeah. just aren't nice and don't care. <laughs> and yeah. Treat their people like crap versus yeah, the bar, saying, like, like
2: I said, the is the yeah. on the floor. Like, yeah, All you have to do is this really basic. And this is what we do with our customer service. I think that's why we've been able to grow so much too. I tell our team like, hey, we don't do anything really different from the guy down the street, right? We're doing vaccines. I'll do a health certificate. We're doing your basic surgeries, anal glands, nail trims, you know, whatever. The thing that makes us different is us. And that's it. Like, that's all we have. So once you kind of really buy into that and you buy into the fact that these are my people and they're great people and I'm going to treat them well, if people know you care about them, whether they're your staff or whether they're your clients, I mean, that just, like you said, I mean, it just opens up a whole new world. And I mean, don't we all want to be treated like that? It's not a difficult concept, but I guess it gets lost in the day to day for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you're similar to me where if we have someone on the team, I'm getting to work with them. They don't work for me, right? Exactly. Like there's a big difference if anything,
2: in that. I work for them. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think that reframe can be very, very helpful. You talked about growth and you just mentioned a little bit there. And part of it is the team and how you do things. There's no IP. It's not this magic formula that, but did you do anything creative marketing wise um, at the beginning or was it right time, right place? San Diego's a, growing spot, there's a need for care, and they just started finding you. Because I know you mentioned a little bit about social media as well. So I was just curious if you did anything creatively from a marketing perspective.
2: I don't know that it was super creative. I think it's kind of like the minimum at this point. But listen, again, with our industry, we're sort of allergic to change. I mean, it's been fairly recent that a lot of these smaller practices especially have even said, oh, we need a website. That's important. And it's not just the basics, like, why do you need to do videos? Why do you need to do, you know? So I think we definitely lag and I wanted to be a little bit more on the leading edge of that. So we did, this was back when kind of Facebook lives were a thing and we were doing work with some rescues. And so I would jump on a Facebook live and be like, here's this litter of puppies we have. And when I look back and, and even now, I wish I could do more, because this is who you are. This is how it is in in the era that we live in. Social media, anything you do online, that's just your reputation. That's what back in the day we would call like having a good reputation and getting word of mouth advertising and things like that. It's basically free. Everybody has a camera and we have cute puppies and kittens and we have happy clients and happy teammates. And the more you can showcase that, the more you're going to grow, obviously, with your client base, because people are going to be happy. They're going to see you happy. They're like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to go there. That's great. I had one client. This was like my favorite moment in the last three years. I think <laughs> she had this pit bull, and she said, "You know why I came here?" I was like, uh, "No, <laughs> please tell me. Do I want to know?" And she goes, "I saw you guys feeding a pup cup to a pit bull on your social media, and I thought those are my people. That's mm-hmm. where I want to go." And I was like, "Yeah, it's working." And so. We have a Slack channel. We have a channel for team shout outs. And I was like, hey, guys, that's where I put this kind of stuff. And like, oh, this is why we do it. And I can tell you, I can hear former practice owners that I've worked with. Sometimes when I make videos going, what are, what are you doing that? Like, I can just hear them in my head going, what are you doing that for? Why would you do that? This is stupid. You should be doing X, Y, Z. And then something like this happens. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's why we do it. Because what else? Again, what else do we have? We have our people. We have the way we treat the animals. And so that's what I've always tried to do. And I think it helps you not just with the clients, but obviously as a hiring tool. Everybody's seeing these, not just your clients, it's potential employees. And when they can see you having a good time at your hospital, people who obviously enjoy working together, you're treating the animals really well. I mean, all of that is just nothing but good. I call it small ball. I'm a big sports fan. And I don't know if you know baseball, but not everything has to be a home run. We're just going to hit some singles. We're just going to hit some singles. And we're going to, Throw a bunch of runs on the board that way.
1: I love it. So Padres fan or do you follow another team? I have to ask now. No,
2: Padres fan for sure. For sure, okay. for sure. Growing up, living in the Midwest, we had, you know back in the 80s, you had your three channels. Maybe you got the UHF, like if you were lucky. It was a good day and there was no bad weather. Both of my grandmothers were huge sports fans. So we would get Royals games. We would get Cardinals games. And occasionally on the UHF, we got WGN and we would get Cubs games. So always a soft spot for those teams, but living here for, gosh, almost 30 years now, for sure. For sure a Padres fan. It's about, it's about damn time. That's all I have to say.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Baseball for me was the sport that I loved growing up and used to watch a lot of baseball and it's just faded and faded and faded to where I just I'm more disinterested but I married into a big Cardinals fan family okay so they're big Cardinals fans so I'll watch them with my wife and with in-laws but
2: (laughs) I'll allow it yeah
1: yeah my dad was a big Detroit sports fan so Detroit Tigers it's like when they they lost to the Cardinals in the World Series and this is going back probably 2009 2010 it was a couple years after that I just got uninterested when they disbanded that team (laughs) and they've just been bad but Yeah, my baseball memory is seeing the team that tied for the worst record in Major League Baseball history, which was the Tigers. Uh ten to nothing, and it was a blazing hot day that we went into Detroit and watched the entire game. Because my dad's (laughs) like, "Well, we bought these tickets, we're gonna watch the whole thing. It's just miserable." Yep, and they just got absolutely hammered. And I was like, "Well, this is fun."
2: And that was the end.
1: (laughs) No, yeah, it wasn't the end. I was still interested at that point, but yeah, that's definitely a memory that's up there. But yeah, baseball for me, (laughs) it's hard to for that one to stick. And I think of it similar to marketing in a way. You have to find something that works that you can be consistent at. And mm-hmm. what I've noticed for me, and again, for you, it's video content. I like doing video. It's fine. I can do it. Writing for me is probably the hardest thing because I just don't think I'm naturally gifted. But having conversation and podcasting, that was the thing that was easy. And so when I started yeah. doing that, and I was like was this doesn't feel like work when I do it. It's a time commitment, but it's not hard to do and I enjoy it.
2: And that's the key. I think we get overwhelmed. Like if you can see all here's like, oh, this person's doing Facebook or that person's doing this or that. Like I should be doing it. No, you should be doing what works for you. And I have learned to chunk it up and I still don't do it to the extent that I need to. But you know, for you, like you can do this podcast and you could choose to video all of it and you could throw that on YouTube. You could do it yourself or you could get an assistant to like, you could probably write three different pieces of content based on every podcast, throw that out there, but do the thing that Lights you up because it's obvious. Like when you do your podcast, I hear it. This is the reason I subscribed and I listened. Is it's interesting to me mostly what you're talking about. But even sometimes if the subject isn't great, like I can hear your interest in the other person and you're bringing on people that you think are going to be of value to your audience and and that's really obvious. So stick with what you know and you love because it very much comes out.
1: Yeah, well, and I appreciate that. I have to ask: Have you been on other podcasts? Because my favorite thing is people that they've never heard them before. So I have to ask, have you been on any other podcasts? I should ask this before.
2: Well, I did Nicole Klassen. She does the veterinary inventory. She's that specialist. And I did another one. Those were last, it's been more than a year.
1: Okay. I never try to listen to episodes with guests that are coming on because I don't want it to change the way that I'm approaching it to where I either shy away or dig into something. So with that, one of the things that you brought up, so hard pivot, right? Back to a question two things that you describe practice ownership as, and I'd like to hear you kind of riff on this, and I think it's been sprinkled throughout the conversation, but you describe practice ownership as autonomy and independence. So I would like to kind of just let you talk a little bit about how you've came to that conclusion and how you've looked at that as your career's changed and evolved.
2: I like to describe myself as I'm probably unemployable at this point. (laughs) I don't know that I could for any length of time work for somebody else. And not that like I know everything and I'm perfect and they don't know what they're doing far from it, but there is just something for me about really sailing that ship by myself and knowing I'm going to get a hundred questions a day from clients, from team members. And I'm the person who has to answer the questions and I have to ultimately decide how much do we charge for this thing that we're going to do. And Color is the lobby going to be? And do we need this piece of equipment? And that is something that brings me a lot of satisfaction. So I think that that's something that you have to look at. You've got to know as a practice owner that you're going to get to do whatever you want to do. And for some people, that's too much. You know, they want to go, look, (laughs) I'm going to show up. I'm going to work from nine to five. I'm going to do a really good job for you. I'm going to lock up when I leave. And that's it. And that's totally fine. Like we need all kinds of people in this industry, in this world, but that's me. I need to know that I can choose like when I'm going to go on a vacation. I'm not going to ask anybody. I'm going to go. Now, my business is going to go down. <laughs> I have an associate and I might get a relief vet. I'm going to have to pay for that. It's probably not going to make me as much money. But whatever. I can live with that. I can't long-term live with Excuse me, do you mind if I take a few days off because I'm going to like I don't want to have to justify that to anybody. I just want to be able to do it. So for me that the autonomy and independence is Absolutely key in all of it. And knowing, right, that some days what that means is you're the one who has to go in when you thought it was going to be your day off, or you don't get paid that pay period because there was a plumbing leak or something like that. But I'll take that trade any day.
1: Yep. And I think once you get a taste of being able to do that, like probably the first time that you paid yourself, and I think I tweeted about this a while back, but the ability for a business owner, the first time that they're able to pay themselves from their business, like you get that taste of freedom. You don't necessarily ever want to walk back from that where you're like, oh my gosh, I can do something that I love and I actually can get paid for this. It's really cool. And then Mm -hmm. you think about the responsibility, like you talked about earlier, where now you're able to pay and sustain family life for someone else. And like, that's a huge responsibility. Back to what you just talked about with the plumbing, like the idea of like leaders have to eat last. Yeah. You are taking the entrepreneurial risk. Your upside is much greater. But those people, like that's a weight and a responsibility for you to execute because yeah, their mortgage payment, their car payment, their kid's school, like all that stuff is on you. And I mm-hmm. think for some people that feels overwhelming, but like, that's such an awesome opportunity to say, you know what, I can help people make what they need to make and encourage them. And especially with you grow and be like, and I can help them make more here than they could somewhere else because I can make their work more satisfying and they can make more. And that's like a win-win, which is awesome.
2: Yeah, it is really cool. And I think it really hit home for a lot of us during COVID and it was like, Oh, crap. You know, am I not going to be able to do this? Am I going to have to cut hours or cut people's? Like, what am I going to do? And so it, it can be overwhelming at times. But once you kind of get the machine up and running and you can look around and be like, I'm paying this person enough so that they are going on a vacation and they're getting paid time off for me and they got paid well enough that they can go someplace. Their daycare is covered. Like, that's really cool. Like, I don't know if that's an ego trip or not, but <laughs> it just feels Doesn't matter. It, it does feel really good.
1: Do you do anything outside of veterinary medicine to keep you grounded? That's a hobby that's completely different to keep your mind fresh and also so that you don't tie your whole identity to being the practice owner of the veterinarian. You do anything outside of that?
2: I don't know. I mean, a little, I guess. It is pretty all-encompassing for me and this is again the part where this is a good time of life for me to do it cuz my kids are gone. My kids are 21 to 27 now and they don't need me. It's not that day-to-day situation that it was when I was like, well, I can't really pour myself as fully into something else because I do have these things at home that are incredibly important to me. And obviously, they're still incredibly important to me, but they're just not under my roof. And so it has been a little bit of a blessing that I've, you know, having the second act time is like, okay, if not now, when? I see people who are my age, I'm 53, and I went to school when I was 42, who are getting to be my age, and their kids are now leaving, and they're they're having a huge crisis of, well, what do I do? Because you have to, you pour yourself into this 18, 25 years, and then it's gone. And what do you do? So I'm very grateful that this is my time to do this because I can put all of myself into it. Now, with that said, I also get to take that nice time off that I mentioned and like, I can run up and see my daughter in LA if I want to for a couple of days and I have another daughter who's in Davis, and I can go visit her, and I can go visit friends whenever I want to. I have a great group of friends from high school that we still hang out. I live on a little kind of hobby farm, so I'm looking out at my horses and goats right now. And yeah, I'm sorry to tell you, it is about 72 degrees and sunny. Kind of feel bad. Like, I have a light sweater on because, like, it's just a little chilly, you know? Yeah. People Um. in California are so soft (laughs) with
1: weather. It was. So, a week ago, it was 75 and sunny in Indiana. And it snowed two days later. It was 32.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I I remember those days. You're like, "Mm, winter coat today or flip-flops? What's it going to be? Yep. We have a... It's not fancy by any means, but I have a nice little house and I have a place for all my all my animals that I love to see and I can just kind of retreat to that when I want to. If I have a day where I'm like, "You know what? I got to take a break." I do enjoy living sort of semi-rural so I don't have to like I don't run into clients and I know I'm not going to do anything I don't have to do. If I just need to sit at the compound for a day or two, it's really quiet and and that's relaxing for me.
1: That's awesome. I love that. Is there anything I haven't asked you about that you feel is on your heart or on your mind that you're like, darn it, I want to talk about this or I want to share this with people that are listening?
2: I don't think so. I don't usually say this many words in a row. Isaiah. this is a lot.
1: (laughs) This is great. I'm just like, yeah, this is great. I'm like, why do I even prepare questions? I think I asked like two or three, but it's been awesome because then there's so many things that as someone that comes on that they say something, I'm like, oh, I want to go this direction. I can see how this comes together. And again, that's part of just you do enough of these and you start to get a good flow. So no, I'm super appreciative. As a listener, though, you know, I'm going to ask you one final question, which is, do you have any questions for me or anything you want to know?
2: I do. So I thought about it after our last thing. and I've been to the dentist recently. How did dentists do it? Like, how do you do it as a single doctor? Because my whole goal right now is like, yes, I'm a single doctor. I brought in another one. I probably want to get another one, you know, in a year or so. And I want to buy another thing. And my goal is to kind of get out of the day to day and be more of a CEO. And I'm looking at my, when I was there the other day, I was like, I'm looking at this one guy and he's here every day and it's a single dentist deal. And I, a lot of them are, at least that's been my experience. How do they do it? Like, do they get relief dentists? How do they sell the practice? How do they take time off? How do they scale? So many questions.
1: Yeah. All good questions. So <laughs> when you say that initially, I was thinking of a dentist locally, that's a client and he did a startup he's by himself and has done really well. But what he's ran into is, the staffing thing where he could be more productive. He just doesn't have the people, which I think is traditionally there, not him, not that he's going to listen to this anyways, but he is not an issue from a boss perspective, but a lot of ego, I feel like is in dentistry less in vet med. There's still some, but not as much where there is that idea of this. I'm going to bring on an associate we're going to partner. And so many of those don't work. So like your experience, right? Like that is everywhere <laughs> in dentistry where you have people that just can't get out of their own way to grow businesses. But one thing that I've seen that has been really successful for a dentist here more locally is what he's done is he basically seeds a new practice. We'll put it all up, hire an associate. And then after two to three years, says, if you want to buy in 50-50, you are going to run it. You'll make the day-to-day decisions. We'll run big mm-hmm. stuff by me. And then five years from there, you can be a hundred percent owner or we'll stay working together and maybe we'll go and grow together in this little business. And so he does it where he has the opportunity to work with a lot of different dentists. And some of them, he'll be like, hey, in our clause, we can exit, you got to buy it, or I'm going to you know, do whatever, right, if it's not the right fit. But there's enough where, hey, they work well together, and they can then grow and scale to where they can bring on an associate and maybe help them grow and invest in it to where he doesn't have to do as much dentistry, or maybe he's doing two or three days a week at different locations. Mm-hmm. But this is what I want to do. So you are telling me that. I
2: can do this. This is totally there's what no I want to do. There is no
1: rules to this, right? Like we talked about. I it before, love like, this. The playbook is open. I think the limiting factor of all business, regardless of what business you are in, is can you get the talent and can you have the people that are aligned to what you are doing? Right. And ultimately, I think there is probably a ton of veterinarians out there that want the entrepreneurship and the the ownership stake, but don't want to do it all themselves. And mm-hmm. so many times, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, like well, a baby I step.
2: Do, yeah.
1: So seed them, and this is where I push back, and I had Paul Diaz, I don't know if you listen to that episode with non-competes, that's where I'm like, hey, if you have someone that really wants to be an owner, you're not ready, you know it's going to come to a head, you're doing what you can, but they're going to leave. Set them aside and say, hey, where do you want to go? How can I invest alongside you and support you and go out and do your thing? And to me, that is such a better way to where, from a business perspective, you can probably have some profit from that. You're supporting them. They're going to go make more and have the ability to do what they want to do. It just makes more sense. But for so many people, they just want to avoid that and say, hopefully, they'll stick around another six months. Hopefully, they'll stick around right. for another year and, and avoid I think it. so
2: many of us have heard, too, like, oh, just don't do a partnership. Like, it doesn't matter, you know, if it's two people, like, it's going to be a problem. And I feel like we get a lot of that in business ownership and maybe in Vet Med in, in particular. Like, oh, partnerships. It's kind of... They're hard. It, kind of look down on. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, right. Like, so is marriage. So is having kids. Like, we do all this other stuff all the time. Like, we if we lay down some ground rules and have some, I feel like it's doable.
1: If you're going to scale that's outside of yourself, you have to have partners. Yeah. You, there's no way a single person can own everything because no one's going to care about the business as much as you, and they shouldn't if you're a 100% owner. No one will. Ooh,
2: that's one of my pet peeves, too. I will say, when I hear owners go, oh, it's just like these people don't care. Of course they don't. They don't care as much as you. It's not their baby, and they shouldn't They're, care. That is not right thinking at all. Make totally. them care. You care about them, and you hire people who are intrinsically motivated and who enjoy doing good work for good people and having a good team. That's what you're looking for. There's a lot of this, like, well, I give them Christmas presents and they don't even care. I'm like, well, did you ask them if they wanted it? Like, <laughs> and did you treat them like crap for eleven and a half months? And then you, you know, <laughs> gave them a present. And you acted. You wanted them to act all excited about it. So. That's my little bitty soapbox at, at the end of the episode. You're welcome. Totally.
1: Totally. And I, <laughs> I agree with you. And so, I mean, for me, like the way that our business is set up, I have a partnership with my business partner, Josh, and then we have the first person that bought into the business. His name's Tim Eline. He bought into the business this year as a minority partner because that was important to him. And we said, hey, you came in early, took an opportunity with us at risk, and we want to make sure that you have an opportunity to buy a bigger chunk than probably anyone else will get at a valuation that's much earlier because we wanted to reward him for what he did because he's been a part of our growth and other people aren't going to get the same thing, but that's okay because he should be rewarded for what he did. And right. so I think he you was have to to just. beginning.
2: Un- he's got the skin yeah. in the game. That's important.
1: And for one of the other members of our team, awesome advisor, zero interest in ownership. He's like, hey, right. I want to work with people. I want to get paid and I want to be able to work remote, which was a big thing. And we we're like, that's fine because of the way our business is structured and support me, but kind of let me do my thing. Let me do my work. He does awesome. And he doesn't need handholding. So it's like, you hire someone good, let them do their thing. Absolutely.
2: And they don't all have to look the same. There's different seats on the bus for everybody. And I think we in veterinary medicine, especially kind of get get lost on that. Like, no, it's supposed to look like this. And if you're a tech, you do this. And if you're an associate, it's like, well, but maybe not. Like, can we make it a little better for people and make them stick around longer?
1: I would tell you, you can absolutely scale and kind of get to that more CEO role and have, you know, multi-location and do things in a different way. It's just finding associates. And shoot, I would think recruiting to San Diego would be easier outside of the taxes that you have to pay. But outside of that, right?
2: The area, there
1: should be some good demand for people thinking like, I want to be here and like, what can we do? Yeah. So maybe if you're listening and you're wanting some ownership and growth and other things, maybe there's a connection. And I think that's one of the things that I love doing on this podcast too, is helping people find others within the industry that think similarly. So.
2: Absolutely. And I love it. I would love to expand that to not just veterinarians, but to have more of a profit sharing or ownership stake for the support staff too, because they work hard. And why do we leave them out? You know, in a lot of states, they're allowed to own.
1: Totally. Yep. That's a great point.
2: That's something we should look into as well. So, all right. So when I need financial advice on setting all this stuff up, I'll call you, right?
1: Okay. Let's do it. Um, (laughs) Thank you for the time. And for those that do want to reach out. I know you're on Instagram because that's how we connected initially. And I'm really bad. So anyone that reaches out to me on Instagram, you have to give me some grace at like maybe a week because I don't have Instagram <laughs> on my phone and I only check it on my computer just because I don't like it on my phone. And that's a yeah. whole other side yeah, conversation. Boundaries. But boundaries yeah, boundaries are important. Don't want to waste time and it's not productive to be on my phone. So would you tell them to reach out there? Is there an email address? Go to your website. How do people find you? How do they connect?
2: Yeah. Yes, Instagram. And I've been more active on TikTok lately. I'm, Say what you will, I'm a 53-year-old woman. I love me some TikTok. (laughs) And I feel like I can really be myself on there. That was kind of where I found my outlet. It's like, oh, this is interesting. And I could really say a lot of what I wanted to say about practice ownership. And it somehow seems a little harsh when I put it on Instagram. I don't know. TikTok's a different animal. But anyway, I am the San Diego DVM on TikTok and on Instagram. And I have a website that I don't pay nearly enough attention to, but it's there. At sddvm.com, and you can email me from there.
1: Awesome. Well, Dr. Hoffman, thank you so much for the time. This was fantastic and uh, really, really appreciate it.
2: Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. Thank you so much.
1: As I kind of close again, one of the ideas of what I want to do is talk about really good openings for opportunities for associates, practice ownership around the country. So there's going to be more of these as they come up, but the two this week are a Central Indiana private practice, so equine or kind of GP companion animal. It is in beautiful Hamilton County, Indiana. It is full-time base plus bonus. The team is fantastic. They are going to be a uh, AHA accredited hospital. They have six doctors and you will have good flexibility on lots of good things. There is a link to this opportunity in the show notes as well. Again, central Indiana, beautiful place to raise a family good affordable cost of living for those that want to buy a house and can't afford it and where they're at coming to hamilton county it's a great spot and then the other one maybe you uh, are like well indiana weather kind of sucks i would much rather prefer to be on the beach so what about a beautiful practice where you can walk to the beach so fort walton beach florida so bayside animal hospital it's a currently two and a half doctor non-corporate small practice lots of growth and opportunity been around for about 30 years, new ownership back in 2021. So there's a young doctor that's taken over and really excited about, I think what the future holds, they're growing and definitely want to uh, expand and hire. So with that, if you're interested in that position, I'm going to put in the email in the show notes as well for Bayside, but it's baysidevet 251 at yahoo.com. And I will put in also the phone number. I need to get him to list that somewhere where I can send you a URL to apply, but yeah, check it out. So there also is no weekends there. So I just wanted to throw that out there. There's no weekends at this hospital. It's important that they are going to get out on time is the other thing they mentioned. So with that, thank you so much for listening as always. And I love feedback. So let me know if there's anything you would like to hear more about or things you want to hear less about. And with that, have a great week. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only